I'm pretty sure that most big brothers find their little sisters totally annoying. But that wasn't the case with my brother. I actually think he really enjoyed my company. Um, we spent a lot of time together, and he was three years older than me, and so he knew a lot more shit than I did about the world. <laughs> and so he taught me things like how to jig for mackerel off the end of the main state pier. And he showed me precisely how to fold his newspapers so that when he tossed them onto a porch, they didn't, they didn't unfold. And he had this magnifying glass, and he showed me how to burn shit with it in summer. <laughs> it was super cool. <laughs> but the one thing that I loved that we did when we were kids, I was maybe four or five years old, and we'd go to the roller rink on Saturday afternoon. And we'd spend the afternoon there, and my brother would hold my hand, and we'd go round and round to the music, and he wouldn't let go. He never let go until he knew that I could do it on my own. When my brother was 26 years old, he went into the hospital with a variety of symptoms. And when he first got there, the doctors thought that he had tuberculosis. And so they quarantined him and they did some more tests and what they found was that he had um, late stage Hodgkin's lymphoma. And they told him at the time that he had um, six months to live. Uh, well, they, they were right about the Hodgkin's, he did have that. And it was late stage, but he didn't die in six months. It was about four years later when my brother went into the hospital for the last time. And when I got that call, I went up to the hospital to visit him. And when I walked into the room, the first thing I noticed was that he was wearing oxygen. He had that tube on that went this way and up around his ears. And it came down here and it cinched. When somebody's as sick as my brother was, it's really hard to ignore that accelerated decline that happens. So he was in the hospital that summer for seven weeks, and I spent a lot of time up there with him. And I even had a bed in his room, and I could spend the night there with him. And one of the things that brought him the most joy was when he could go outside and just get some fresh air, because we all know there's none of that in a hospital. And so we'd make a plan. And I would come and pull up outside of his door with a wheelchair like a valet. And he'd be waiting for me. And he'd have his cut-off jeans on with his red pocket t-shirt and his jean jacket. And he always had his jean jacket because that's where the stash was. <laughs> so he'd sit down in that chair and we'd go on down the hall to the elevators and we'd get down to the main floor and we'd head out the front door. And once we were outside, if we took a hard right, which we always did, that sidewalk led us up and around this beautiful promenade, the Western Promenade. 
And so I'd push him up that incline and we'd go past that beautiful gazebo and further down there was a row of benches. <clears throat> and there was one bench that we really loved. It was one that this vegetation had kind of encased it and grown up and around it, but there was an opening enough to sit in there. And it was kind of magical. And so I'd stop at that bench and he'd get out of the chair and he'd sit down on that bench. And the, some of that greenery would just be hanging down in front of him and he'd sit there and light up that big fatty. <laughs> You know, he'd get happy because it was the one thing that took away the nausea just for a minute. And I think maybe it was magical for him too and that maybe just then it felt like everything was normal. I loved being in that neighborhood because we had spent some time there as kids. We, had, we lived on the third floor of an apartment building and I remember that apartment and I remember my bedroom there, and I was terrified to go into that room. I was probably seven or eight, nine years old, and I was so afraid to go in there, and I'd say to my brother, hey, John, would you go in and turn my light on? You know, and he'd go in, and he'd start feeling around for that string that hung from the ceiling, and he'd turn the light on, and I'd be in the hallway, and I'd say, check under the bed. <laughs> and he'd do that, and then I'd say, and look in the closet. And he'd do that. And he never made fun of me. He just would do it because he was a self-appointed protector. He was my big brother. And so, anyway, he couldn't stay out on that bench very long because he really needed to be back in his room with the oxygen. And so he'd let me know when it was time to go. And, sit back down and I'd take him back down that long walkway and we'd go back into the hospital and take the elevator to the seventh floor cancer ward and I'd deliver him. During that seven weeks, my brother asked me a question. He said, hey Ange, what would you do if I wasn't around anymore? And that question made me uncomfortable, and it still makes me uncomfortable. Because nobody around me was talking about death. Not the doctor, not the nurses, not my mother. And I, and I really needed somebody just to grab me, just like this, and say, look, he's dying. Time is running out. But nobody was doing that. And I was 27, and I was not ready to admit that my brother was going to die. There was one last room change that happened, and this one was down the end of a very long hall. It felt like a dead-end street. There was a window at the very end, and just before that window was a, a right-hand turn into the room. And in some ways, it felt really lonely and isolated down there. But then again, there wouldn't be any more strangers walking by and 
peering in and trying to sum it up, you know, the way we do. So I went to see him a couple of days before he died. And as I walked down that long hall, he was standing in the doorway. And when I got to him, he was kind of excited. He was kind of happy. And he said, Ange, I'm going to be going home in a couple of days. And I said, you, really? You are? He said, yeah. And I said, they told you that? He said, yeah, I am. And I wanted nothing more than for my brother to go home to his little cottage near the beach. And so I said, great. <laughs> I said, great. That's so good. I'm really happy. I was with my brother on his last night, and I had gotten there late because I worked a late shift at the restaurant. And when I walked in, he was alone, and something was different. He didn't really acknowledge me like he normally did. I don't even know if he knew that I was there, but he was up. He was, he, he was, he was agitated, and he was restless, and he kept like fidgeting with things. And I kept saying, you know, John, why don't you get back into bed? You, you need your rest. And I was exhausted, and I really needed mine, too. But he wasn't really listening or responding to that. And I was afraid he would get tangled up in that long oxygen line or trip over that rolling IV pole. And I didn't want him to get hurt. So I was encouraging him to settle down, but he wouldn't. And so he got up and he went into the bathroom. And he turned on the light and he stood in front of the sink in the mirror. And from where I sat, I could see his back because that gown was open in the back. And the way the light came down, it cast shadows on every one of his bones that stuck out. And I just followed them down. I just watched him and I followed them down and I got to the diaper, and then I got to the legs that stuck out like new branches on an old tree. And as I watched him, he moved in closer to that mirror, like he got this close. And he just was looking. He was looking at his face. Like that. As though he'd never seen it before, or maybe he was seeing it for the last time. Then he suddenly turned to the left and he said, what are those two kids doing on board this ship? They're stowaways. They're not supposed to be on this ship. And I didn't interrupt him because it felt like a private moment. So he came out of the bathroom and he went and sat on the edge of his bed and he pointed his long, thin arm and fingers past me and he said, Whose roller skates are those? And there weren't any roller skates, but I said they were mine. Those are mine, John, because I wanted him to know that he wasn't alone and that I was there with him. 
And now I think what was happening that night is that he was on his way home. So my mother came at 6 a.m. And I met her outside and we talked in the hall the way you do. And she told me to go home and get some rest. And so I did. And she said she'd call if anything happened. Like, what good is that? Everybody says that. So I went home and I climbed into bed with all of my clothes on. And I put my head down and I closed my eyes. And maybe I dozed, but the phone rang and startled me. And I answered it. And whoever it was told me that my brother had died. Back when he asked me that question about what would I do if he wasn't around anymore, what he really wanted to know was, was his little sister going to be OK without her big brother? And I didn't know enough to say, John, you don't have to worry about me. I'm going to be OK. I love you, and I'm going to miss you forever. And thank you for being such a good big brother. <clears throat>